I wonder if I might hunt for sherds in your garden. Sherds? Well, I have an archaeological interest. I'm a student of that in my own time. Old things generally. You're listening to Sherd's Podcast, a journey through the outskirts of literature. Ojciec mój wyjeżdżał do wód i zostawiał mnie z matką i starszym bratem na pastwę białych od żaru i oszałamiających dni letnich. Wertowaliśmy odurzeni światłem w tej wielkiej księdze wakacji, której wszystkie karty pałały od blasku i miały na dnie słodki do omdlenia miąż złotych gruszek. In July, my father left to take the waters, abandoning my mother, my older brother and me, as prey to the dazzling summer days that were white with heat. Dazed by the light, we browsed the great book of vacation, whose every page was on fire from the radiance and which contained in its depths the languorous sweet flesh of golden pears. Adela would come back on those luminous mornings like Pomona from the fire of the blazing day, pouring from her basket the colorful beauty of the sun. The glistening sweet cherries, full of water beneath their transparent skin, the mysterious dark sour cherries, whose aroma far exceeded the flavor, apricots, whose golden flesh held the core of long afternoons. And next to this pure poetry of fruit, she would unload racks of flesh with the keyboards of veal ribs, swollen with energy and nourishment, seaweeds of vegetables that resembled slaughtered cephalopods and jellyfish, the raw material of dinner with a taste as yet unformed and bland, the vegetative telluric ingredients of dinner with a smell both wild and redolent of the field. That was the opening paragraph from August, the first story in Cinnamon Shops, a collection of short stories by Bruno Schulz which was originally published in Polish in 1934. In this episode, we discuss this classic of Polish literature in its most recent translation by Madeleine G. Levin, which is published by Northwestern University Press. The readings are by Marceli Zomer. In these magnificent autobiographical stories, Schultz writes about the sleepy town of Trochobert, where he grew up, transforming it into a mythical landscape in which every object blushes under the intensity of his gaze. Join us over the next hour while we discuss this incredibly rich and beguiling text. We hope you enjoy our conversation. So welcome to Sherd's podcast. My name's Sam Pullum and I'm here today with Stefan Głowacki, our resident Polish literature expert. Hello. 
Hello, Stefan. If you're a long-term listener, you might remember Stefan from episode six a couple of years ago now when we talked about Rujevic. Thanks for joining us again, Stefan. Thank you for inviting me here, Sam. It's really nice to, to be here or to connect via internet. <laughs> Indeed, yeah, in these troubled times. So we're talking today about Cinnamon Shops by Bruno Schulz, which was originally published in 1934. And we are focusing on the newer translation which came out in 2018 in the Collected Stories edition, the new translations by Madeleine Levin. And I wondered, Stefan, if you could remember your first encounter with Bruno Schultz or, or this text in general. Did you have to read it at school or was it somewhere else? Or Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like oh, 20 years ago. Wow. I, I read it in school. It was like the text we should read in school. We read actually the whole, the two short stories collections of Bruno Schultz, which was like the Cinnamon Shops and the uh, Sanatori under the sign of Hourglass. Yeah, yeah. And of course, I read it in high school. It was like the last year, I think. And it really amazed me by that time. It was very unique and very difficult to read at the same time. But mm. yeah, it was something great, really one of its kind when I read it for the first time. Yeah, I wonder because when I read this for the first time, that was probably about eight years ago. I was just staggered by the beauty of this prose. There's, there's just an incomparable intensity to it, I think. And it's mm-hmm. just so vivid and dense and yeah it has the sort of density of poetry and its vocabulary is just vast i wonder if you you had the same impression reading it in in polish of course because i'm just wondering i've heard people talking about sort of interwar polish prose and that it is sort of richer than modern polish prose tends to be and i wondered if it feels as outlandish as it feels in english to to read it does it read as strangely and intensely yeah of course there is a certain model of prose in the 20s and 30s in Polish literature it was even called like this poetic prose model and there's like Gombrowicz and Schulz the biggest names in that model of, of writing and, and maybe Witkacy as well who mm. was like also the famous one by that time so yeah it is kind of typical for that avant-garde prose we call it also like that and actually those three writers they, they were quite close we can say that they weren't like the big friends but they knew each other they respected each other as well mm. like Witkacy, Gombrowicz and Schulz and they kind of wrote in the same times and in the, the same areas so yeah it's, it's like this kind of typical for this the three bigger the biggest names of the interwar period in Poland is his vocabulary as sort of challenging for a Polish reader yes of course it is when I read it for the first time I have to read each sentence two or three times to get it and and still my students when they have to read it they have to really work hard to understand it properly and to, to get all of this denseness mm-hmm. of it. Yes, of course, it's very challenging. Some critics accused uh, Bruno Schulz of being like the late young Poland writer because there are some similarities for uh, this period of time in Polish literature. I mean, like the late 19th century, mm. this dense language and mm. this language full of stylistic figures. This is something which was popular in young Poland period. 
But uh, I think, and not only I think, but I think a lot of critics think that the language of Schulz is so much more intense and more individual and one of its kind and peculiar <laughs> than mm. this, this period that, uh, of course, he is much bigger than that. Just after his first publishing, he was accused for some critics, uh, uh, by some critics for that, yeah, being late. You're talking about Moda Polska, which might sort of align with maybe in the periods that, that we might talk about, like, symbolism decadence this kind of late late 19th mm-hmm. century literature not not very much of that has been translated into english as far as mm-hmm. i'm aware from Wada polska so he was seen as a bit of a throwback to that previous era uh, yeah they call him like an epigon like when you are the writer who is like writer or, or an artist who is too late and he is creating nothing new which is you know he's only you are only copying something which is not cool anymore <laughs> that that's so that's so interesting to hear because reading him he feels so modern and sort of vital it's quite shocking for me to hear that he would be considered that way i remember reading one of the first reviews of schultz it was written by two critics and actually very like especially one of them was like the big name in Polish literature later in Polish history of literature they, they were like Kazimierz Wyka and Stepan Napierski and they wrote the text called like the double voice about Schulz mm. which is called the Dwugłos o Schulzu and they said this is very bad literature that this is sort of grafomania okay like maybe sort of uh, overwrought we might say over stylized this kind of idea yeah 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 and it's nothing new and actually it was in the young Poland so yeah this is something you know you don't have to be interesting in that and it, it's like the weak literature mm. and they didn't recognize him by that time when I was studying at university in, in Polish literature Schulz was one of the biggest names in our history of, of literature and even for those type of critics which can be called like his believers mm. even so yeah yeah it was like the biggest name name you could meet on the field of Polish literature. I find that with his style, I mean, I I love it. I'm just kind of bowled over by it. But it does mean that I read him quite slowly because that intensity is sort of very much sustained throughout all the stories and I sort of want to savor each one just to be able to sort of like taste it fully you know it's interesting <laughs> to think of it that way because there's there's loads of synesthesia in in the work as well as sort of bleeding of different senses yes. into one one another like colors bleeding into the sounds and the light bleeding into taste or whatever it might be it's just yeah. a full sensory experience and you have to let it wash over you slowly i think yes yes it is uh, i think i read it countless of times now and uh, i'm still lost in it and i still find new meanings and new small connections between all short stories just a couple of years ago i just realized that these short stories they have like many things in common and there is like some kind of big story mm. which connects those short stories like the whole general story in that mm. and it's difficult to see this and to find it uh, actually and you are not getting bored by shows no uh, certainly not read it every every year yeah <laughs> and even even now uh, you know i i've read it like many times and and even now when i was you know preparing myself to the show i found it really fresh every day the great summer passed in its entirety through the dark apartment on the second floor of the apartment house on the market square the silence of shimmering rings of air 
squares of radiance dreaming their passionate dreams on the floor, the melody of a barrel organ drawn from the day's deepest golden vein, two or three measures of a refrain played over and over on a piano somewhere, fainting away in the sunshine on the white sidewalks, lost in the fiery depths of the day. The housework done, Adela would draw the linen drapes, releasing shade into the room. Then, the colors dropped an octave lower, the room filled with shade as if submerged in the light of ocean depths and was reflected even more dimly in the green mirrors, and all the sweltering heat of the day was breathing on the drapes, which were billowing gently with Nunawa dreams. Are you able to tell us a little bit about Schultz's life, his, his rather short life? Yeah, yeah, he lived uh, 50 years, exactly 50 years, and he was born in 1892 in Drohobych, where he spent all his life, and he, he died there too. By that time, Drohobych was a uh, part of the Austrian-Hungarian Empire, Galicia, it was the, the partition of Poland, of course. Mm. So Schulz grew up in this Austrian-Hungarian Empire, so he knew German, and of course he knew Polish, and he was born in a Jewish family, but it wasn't like a religious one. So he he hasn't spoke Hebrew or Yiddish, okay. but he was familiar, right? familiar with the tradition and religion mm. and many concepts. Is important in Judaism, of course. And his father was um, a merchant, kind of small merchant. Mm. Um, actually, I will talk about father for sure, oh, right? Yeah. Because he's very important person in the, in these stories. Maybe I will leave it for later. So Bruno, uh, he grew up in Drohobych. He was always very, let's say, it, a weak human being mm. <laughs> uh, in, a, in a physical way. He was very small and he has kind of weak health. Uh, he has problems with his heart. And I think the lungs too, because his father was ill and he had this tuberculosis, which was quite common at that time. Very important year for Bruno was uh, 1915. This was the year of death of his father. And also, we all know, the beginning of the First World War, which changed this region very much. Mm. Because after that, Trochobych and Galicia went back to Poland and became part of Poland for the next two years. Uh, 20 years, sorry. And Bruno uh, started his um, studies in Vienna. He was uh, studying architecture and drawings. And by that time, it was called like more like engineering studies. Uh, I think it was like not to make it too much artistic. Right. <laughs> yeah, to prepare, you know, for a proper um, occupation mm. uh, <laughs> rather than creating an artist. Uh, but of course, Bruno wanted to be an artist. He wanted to be a painter. So he chose this architecture to find this... Um, like an outlet for it. Yeah, 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 yeah. But he, he didn't finish his studies uh, because of the problems with his heart. He had to uh, stop it and he went back to Drohobych because he had to find a job. He started to work as a teacher in local school, in the middle school. And he stayed there for the rest of his life. Mm. Actually, he was, a, he was an arts teacher. He was teaching drawings and craftings. Like woodwork and things like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. And drawings, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so he worked there for like almost 20 years and he really hated this job. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I've heard I've heard well I mean I read about it in um this Pitsovsky book Regions of Great Heresy. Mm, which is which is actually one and only Schultz uh, biography. Yeah. Because it's quite difficult to to reconstruct his life. Mm. 
it was probably maybe not very we will call it like called interesting life it was quite ordinary life but also Schulz was living his internal life more than this external one <laughs> yeah absolutely I read that he was in a sort of constant battle over time with with this mm-hmm. school with the demands that his job made of him and his own time to be creative yes yes and he pers- perceived the time spent in school uh, at school like at the time lost he even said wrote in one of his letters that he's unable to write in the same day he works at school yeah, so he yeah. he just even he can't divide the day he can't work after school no the day is lost <laughs> i know how he feels stefan <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah i mean that that crops up in his letters quite a lot doesn't it this idea of just people demanding time of him and how he he views it as someone like feeding on the leftovers of his life i think mm-hmm. he puts it like that but by all accounts he was quite a captivating teacher mm-hmm. like a according to his students view of him that you know people who were interviewed about it later and that he would tell he was amazing drawing, stories yeah yeah drawing those stories yeah yeah i think he could be very captivated yeah just out of curiosity stefan do you admire his artwork as well it's very peculiar <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and it's interesting there is a lot of this erotic and masochism mm. uh, in that stuff. It's interesting, <laughs> I have to say. But I think I much more like Schultz as a writer than Schultz as a drawer or painter. Yeah, me too. It's it's an interesting sort of companion to the stories, perhaps another view into his imagination. I don't feel sort of moved by it in the same way that I, I am by the writing. Yeah. And I find it a little bit too much monothematic. You said he was sort of close with some of the major writers of the period, Vitkatze and Gombrowicz. Was he meeting these people in real life or uh, are these mostly correspondence and being published together, things like that. Is interacting with other artists, I suppose. No, not not many. Of course, he did with some, uh, but mostly throughout the letters. And it was his way to, to connect with people, uh, for sure. He had this big relation with uh, Deborah Vogel, the poet. I think he was exchanging le- letters with Gombrowicz and uh, with mm. uh, Witkace. One of the reasons of that was, of course, that he lived in this Drohobic, which is actually very far away from from Warsaw and from Zakopane when uh, Witkazy lived. So he wasn't like the member of the society or literary circle. He started to write his stories somewhere around uh, 1925 or 26. We don't Mm. know the exact date. And we just know that he was writing fragments and short stories for a couple of years. And this very groundbreaking year was the year of 1933 when he came to Warsaw, came to one of his friends, I think she was called Magdalena Gross, and she knew Naukowska one of the, the biggest names in Polish literature then. She was very influential. She had a lot of friends in high places and she could basically, you know, arrange anything. And he just forced her friend to set up a meeting with Naukowska. He had like only one day in Warsaw. And he went to, to this Magdalena Gross and he forced her and she, she called to Naukowska. She set up a meeting and he gave his prose to Naukowska and she, she told him to wait 
and she read it and after a couple of hours she called and she said wow this is something extraordinary mm. one of the biggest you know debut in our literature we have to print it we have to print it now and it was published in uh, December the same year with with the year of publishing of 1934 it sounds like it should have been something that changed his life completely but it it doesn't look like it really did it, since he remained in the same place for forever it did it didn't <laughs> yeah, actually mm-hmm. was that kind of recognition quite widespread did he become a sort of name in in polish literature in the way that that might have suggested or he he was recognized in a certain you know areas and certain circles of course i think in the in you know the this highest places of this interwar mid literary circles he was recognized well and and of course the usuals i mean like wiadomości literackie which was like the biggest periodic concert in literature so yeah sure he was uh, kind of well known and it was like the big debut but of course he didn't change his life he had to work as a teacher still there was like no money in in this type of literature of course he even he got some awards and wiadomości literackie award which was quite prestigious and even the uh, Polish Academy of Literature award in 1938 i think so yeah yeah he was you know kind of recognized it seems like being in this small town was quite sort of fundamental to his artistic vision there as well it doesn't mm-hmm. i mean i'm not certain whether he sort of craved a life in a in a bigger city but it seems like there was a pull for him in drachowicz for sure he, he he felt safe there he even went to paris once and he was very scared there and he always needed someone to to go out with him yeah uh, <laughs> he, <laughs> but he he really wanted to go there but uh, when he came to to the city it was like too big for him it like oh, he was overwhelmed so sure uh, drakobrich was very small and this quiet city by that time it was actually you know growing fast mm. because of the oil industry which was growing there drakobrich and borisław they found an oil there so they built some industry around that but still it remained a small city like the very provincial one and even now when you see the drogobet i haven't been there but i know some people who've been there and they say it's really it's really nothing uh, mm. <laughs> when you know this the city from schulz pros it's wow it's something fantastic and yeah. amazing but when you come there it's like you know this typical eastern european uh, small city we have a lot of in poland too you know i thought of taking a trip there i mean i would still like to just as a sort of pilgrimage mm-hmm. but i spoke to an another friend my friend Antek who'd been there uh, out mm-hmm. of the same kind of interest that he wanted to go and see where Schultz had created these masterpieces and uh, he said there was basically nothing there and that yeah. <laughs> even the the murals that were painted by Schultz there were also no longer there i don't know if you if you heard about that Stefan that this israeli foundation yad vashem the holocaust martyrs and heroes remembrance authority yeah they they took those murals away right and yeah wanted to display them in israel without the authority of the ukrainian government is is that right yeah yeah it, it is true it is yeah true. yeah <laughs> nobody nobody comes to drogovich yeah uh, <laughs> let's face that <laughs> but but you know uh, you know but there is also the problem that he's a polish writer so the ukrainian authorities they probably don't 
don't have a you know interest to promoting Schultz. So there's no claim over him like you know there no. often is with with certain writers. No, no, I I never heard. And you know he is like very well known in professional areas, and of course he was for many years he was the part of this obligatory curriculum in school. Mm. So people in Poland knew Schultz, but he's not like this popular writer. Mm. He's not like he's not like Mitskevich or the other writers who can you know the governments can can kind of fight about them. I I don't think that they can see Schultz as a potential candidate to bring tourists to Drohob. <laughs> <laughs> you know. <laughs> I haven't seen a statue of Bruno Schultz in Warsaw or anywhere in Poland actually. <laughs> yeah, I don't yeah. know if there is any in Drohobich to be honest. Uh, yeah, yeah. We should talk about how he died because that's quite a yeah. tragic story, isn't it? Bruno Schulz, like 98% of Jews in this part of Europe, died during the World War II in 1942. During the World War, you know, these areas, at the beginning, they became the part of Soviet Union. And after, by 1941, when Germans attacked um, the Soviet Union, in, they were like under German occupation. So, of course, there was so many Jews in these areas, this eastern Poland and the western Russia, we can call it like so. There is, of course, uh, there was a ghetto in Drohobych and Schulz's friends, they offered him help. They offered him money to go out to Warsaw maybe, to hide somewhere, but he was so scared of the travel, he wasn't like able to to go out from Drohobych. And he stayed there and he kind of found the protection. One of the SS uh, soldiers took him as his protector. This is Felix Landau, I think his name is. Yeah, 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 you're right, Felix Landau, yeah. And Schulz was his private painter. Mm. He was doing some work for him. He was painting his children, painting his walls in his house. Yeah, and Schulz believed that this job will save him. But unfortunately, he died in um, kind of a, let's say, spontaneous action. They, German organized something like that many times. It was like the big organized action, which, you know, was like cleaning the ghetto or like, moving people to, to the camps it was just some kind of a street shootout there is one version of the story that he was killed by another SS soldier who wanted he wanted to take revenge on, on Lando for killing his Jew because that's how they called uh, that this uh, relationship like my Jew and your Jew so the fact is that Schulz died there in Drohobych on the streets and we don't even know where he is you know buried there are stories of a novel that he wrote the Messiah, yeah, which is now lost, I think. Are there still hopes to recover that? I know that the writer Cynthia Ozick has written a whole novel based on this lost manuscript. You know, everything can happen probably, but, but I, th- I think it's gone. It's gone. Uh, I wonder how the course of European literature might, might change with it, you know. With this found novel, yeah. Yeah. Because he's just a writer of such stature, I think. Absolutely deserves to be regarded in the sort of first rank of uh, European literature, I think. Yeah, and, and we sh- I think we should say that, that this, um, like, the body of work, uh, Schulz's work, is quite, very small. Just these two collections of short stories, and, and that's it. It's like 200 pages, yeah. uh, maybe, of very dense and very intense literature, but it's still 200 pages. Uh, so we're hoping for more, yeah. for sure. <laughs> uh, but uh, there is none for now. Fingers crossed, though, right? <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs>
And maybe you can say like a couple of words uh, uh, about the afterlife of Bruno Schulz. Sure, yeah. Uh, because, uh, of course, he was kind of forgotten after the war. We have this Stalin period in Poland, socialism, and this uh, Schulz's literature was totally not in the mainstream of literature by that time. I think it was actually Jerzy Fitzowski who was always this first critic who was, you know, reconstructing Schulz's life and his work. And actually it was him and the other, like Artur Sandauer, Jan Boński, like these critics, they are the biggest names of Polish history of literature. Already in the 60s or 70s, when he started to become uh, this established writer. So there's a long there's a long sort of fallow period in, in the middle there where he's not receiving that kind of attention. Yeah, yeah, of course, it was like weird <laughs> for communists, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, he is um, he's now published in probably the major classic series in, in English, this Penguin Classics edition I've got. Not the version that we're reading, but he does exist within that. So he is read a lot outside of Poland as well, um, certainly in mm-hmm. English-speaking world. So he has a stable reputation in, in English too. It's good to hear it, good to hear that, yeah. I shall never forget that luminous drive that brightest winter night. The colorful map of the skies grew into an immense boundless cupola on which fantastic continents, oceans and seas were piled up, lined with contours of astral vortexes and currents, the luminous contours of celestial geography. The air became easy to breathe and light, like silver gauze. It smelled of violets. From under the snow, woolly-like white caracal, trembling anemones peeked out, with a spark of moonlight in their delicate calyxes. The entire forest appeared to be illuminated with thousands of lights and stars, plentifully dropped by the December firmament. The air smelled of some kind of secret springtime, the ineffable purity of snow and violets. We were driving into hilly terrain. Lines of hills that looked shaggy with the naked twigs rose up like blissful sighs towards the sky. I noticed on these joyful slopes entire groups of wanderers gathering from among the moss and bushes, fallen snow-wet stars. The road became steep, the horse kept slipping and had a hard time pulling the coach, which was making music with all its joints. I was happy. My chest inhaled the blessed spring of the air, the freshness of stars and snow. One of the most noticeable things about this text is that each story is given from the perspective of a, of a young boy. The point of view is that of a, of a young child. And in this child's eyes, this, the small town of Trochobur is sort of transformed into a kind of mythical landscape. You know, I just thought I would ask you first, Stefan, what you thought about the sort of importance of that young viewpoint, you know, of childhood in this text. And, you know, is that crucial to Schultz's artistic vision do you think oh yeah i think it is we have to remember that is uh, of course he has the young children's eyes but the language of an adult yes uh, so it creates like very unique narration which is on one hand is very mature yeah and mm. and, uh, and well organized and on the other hand is yeah it has this free and fantastic viewpoint of the child so of course yes uh, it, it is it is very important and we can even call the whole the old stories like fantastic autobiography mm. 
right? Or even returning to the childhood. Yeah. So, yeah, I think it's crucial. That's that's a really important distinction that you make, I think, though, between the sort of perspective of a child, but it's not narrated by a child mm-hmm. or not narrated in a child's voice, which suggests that memory plays an enormous role and, and how the world is transformed through the lens of memory. It takes on this mythological grandeur through that process. Memory and uh, also it's interesting when you try to apply categories to that world created by Schultz. Is it fantastic? Is it realism or realistic? Or it's something else? This world created by Schultz, it's very subjective and it's very psychological in the same time. It's not about natural and supernatural or realistic or versus fantastic. It's about that, about this subjective and psychological way of perceiving the world and transforming it. So it's not that in this world, fantastic things happen. No, no. It's not magic, right? It's just happening because of the way that Schulz is describing them. Yes, absolutely. I think I read it in uh, Fitzowski's book. Uh, There's like this interesting concept that time, especially time, becomes very relative there. You can say why it takes so long, but in this Schulz's world, time is longer, just becomes longer you know or shorter sometimes but yeah uh, yeah so this is this subjective way of seeing things it becomes a rule which organizes the whole world i think that's a a really good way to put it that this is a transformative imagination you know it's so fully realized through the perceptive lens of this imaginative child that this is what shapes the world and not the other way around it's it seemed to me that from thinking about this text Mitazatia Rzeczywistości that you, you sort of pointed me towards, which obviously translates as as the mythologizing of reality. I think there's a kind of connection between what Schultz is saying in this text and the idea of a return to childhood um, that struck me as really, really interesting. I took the liberty of translating a little bit of this critical text some some even called that text uh, Schulz's manifesto yeah it's like very important for understanding his work and his ideas so great work <laughs> yeah it's, it's quite a, it's quite a long fragment so um strap strap yourself in uh, <laughs> okay the, this is the opening part of the mythologizing of reality and he says meaning is the essence of reality that which does not possess meaning is not real for us Each fragment of reality is alive thanks to its participation in a certain universal meaning. The old cosmogonies expressed this with the apothem, in the beginning was the word. The unnamed does not exist for us. To name something is to connect it to a certain universal meaning. The isolated, mosaic-like word is a later creation. It is the result of technique. The primeval word was a hallucination, circling the meaning of the world. It was a great universal totality. The word in today's colloquial sense is just a fragment, a vestige of some former all-encompassing integral mythology. There is within it, therefore, a tendency towards regrowth, towards regeneration, towards the replenishment of its full meaning. The life of the word depends upon the fact that it strains and stretches itself to thousands of associations, like the body of the snake of legend, whose dismembered parts seek each other out in the darkness. This 
thousandfold yet integral organism of the word was ruptured into individual expressions, sounds, into everyday speech, and in this new form was applied to practical needs and has come to us as an organ of understanding. And I skip a little bit here, Stefan. Oh, it is great translation. Oh, man. thanks, man. <laughs> <laughs> uh, really? <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Then he goes on, but when in a certain way the requirements of practice are relaxed, when the word liberated from this constraint is left to its own devices and is able to govern itself, there then occurs within it a regression, a reverse current. The word then pursues its old connections and the consummation of its meaning. This tendency of the word to return to its source, its homeward longing, its longing for its verbal ancestry, we call poetry. And I was I was really fascinated by this text because uh, it seems to sort of parallel what is going on on this psychological level that, that you were talking about, Stefan, that um, just like within language, there, there's a sort of innate principle that sort of beckons a word back to its former primeval origins where it's sort of in a kind of purer form and separated from practicality or even utility you know that's expressed not just through Schultz's manipulation of of that language but perhaps in the way that that his consciousness is manifested in the prose maybe this is what a human being does through memory or through dreaming to return to this childlike state of wonder where it can sort of act upon the world divorced from any utilitarian or mundane concerns Mm -hmm. the moments of pure reverie in this are not concerned with the workings of the world or with things that need to be done with agency but are much more inert and just just pure observation of the world and that this separation from utility that the child experiences because there are no requirements of them in the world is where the poetry lies for for Schultz. You know, there's so many ways we can go reading that text. And I think, of course, this this perspective of a child is, is so important here. And that's why he called it uh, even a great epoch, the moment of the childhood. It's like this, in Polish, it's a genialna epoka, which mm-hmm. is a little bit like the great, great epoch epoch of of the life Mm. there is also one interesting uh, thought in the text in this mythologizing of the real reality right when he compare a poetry and science Mm. yeah and saying that the poetry and science is actually the same Mm. they just you know trying to to find a sense in the reality to name the reality and also there's like the great i think i i really love the conclusion of the of the uh, of this text mm. that we think that uh, the world is like the shadow of the reality mm. And he said that the, the word is a reflection of the reality. Mm. And he said, no, it's different. It would be better to say that the reality is the shadow of the word. It, it's, you know, the, one of the biggest problems of philosophy. Yeah. Yeah, what was first, right? Or the things or the words. And I think Schultz is saying straight away that reality has uh, this um, mainly linguistic character. It is linguistic. And this is the most important, I think, one of the important thoughts in his work. And it's very typical for that time. Ludwig Wittgenstein's ideas that the word is perceived throughout the language. Yeah, and the reality is uh, much more symbolic than realistic. Maybe there is not such thing like reality. It's only how can we perceive reality. We only perceive it throughout the language. 
right? We can name things. What was the first the first sentence? Could you read it again? Um, in your translation. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, my, in my translation, meaning is the essence of reality. Oh, yes. And the, 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 next, the next sentence? That which does not possess meaning is not real for us. Oh, yeah, yeah. I think it's very, very deep. <laughs> it obviously ties in so deeply with Schultz's practice i suppose right his manner of con- constructing this mythical landscape but i can't help but feel that the underlying idea of it beneath the consideration of language is some sort of platonic model almost you know this idea of a world of forms mm-hmm. or you know maybe this ev- even this sort of aristotelian first cause idea that there is a an original point there is a sort of primeval object from which everything else stems Um, and that we struggle to get back to it or that the artistic process is trying to find something original, find something true Mm -hmm. and primeval. Underneath the pure discussion of language, that sort of backward process exists. Yeah, yeah, of course. Uh, and I think it's uh, maybe it's like the one of the connections between Schultz's writing and uh, Judaistic tradition. Mm. The idea of logos, the word, it has this creative power. We can call it like this religious factor of Schultz's work. We can also point out uh, these features of this mythologizing. Like I think it's like this this method, right? This mm. Schultz's method that he is always trying to find uh, a myth in the reality to mythicize the reality, yeah, and he always trying to find those lower objects, yeah, like the fallen angels and the simple and ordinary things, uh, which becomes extraordinary. Yeah, I mean, in the opening story in August, just the description of of the fruits that are in the in the basket in Adela's basket have this mysterious grandeur about them don't they you know to just read a little bit from it Adela would come back on those luminous mornings like Pomona from the fire of the blazing day pouring from her basket the colorful beauty of the sun the glistening sweet cherries full of water beneath their transparent skin the mysterious dark sour cherries whose aroma far exceeded their flavor, apricots whose golden flesh held the core of long afternoons, and so on and so on. There are categories of experience beyond the sort of uh, attributes of these fruits, right? They contain time and they contain stories and there is a sort of depth within them. So they're kind of always elevated. He's always sort of elevating these objects by focusing this very detailed attention on them until they sort of blush. Just on that idea of elevating the, the everyday, it seems to me it's a very romantic idea. It seems to me to come out of romanticism in, in some way. I mean, I'm sure it precedes mm-hmm. it, but when it's sort of theorized in that way, mm-hmm. I see it a lot in romanticism. And I, I was particularly struck by a similarity between what Schultz is talking about in the mythologizing of reality and this idea in German romanticism, particularly Novalis, this concept of qualitative involution have you ever come across that Stefan no 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 it's a metaphorical use of like a mathematical phrase of bringing a number to a higher power right and there's this famous passage from Novalis's notebook where he says um, the world must be romanticized then one will again find the original sense romanticizing is nothing more than a qualitative involution in this operation the lower self is identified with a better self 
In this manner, we are a qualitative series of powers. When I give the commonplace a higher meaning, the customary a mysterious appearance, the known the dignity of the unknown, the finite the illusion of the infinite, I romanticize it. So, like, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, in in several ways, it's really similar. What you were talking about, so the looking at these lowly objects and making them important, giving them a kind of new life. But, But also this idea then one will again find the original sense. This is what Mm -hmm. Nevada says. Mm -hmm. So like Mm -hmm. by undergoing this process, we come back to something true and original and real and primeval. And and this is what Schultz said in in his in his text exactly. Exactly exactly this, right? And this is like 100 years Mm -hmm. before, basically. Very, very interesting, you know, idea. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I see see connections Mm -hmm. between just the way the romantics looked at the world and the way uh, Schultz does. I mean, I don't know if that's true of the Polish romantics as well, do you, would you say it is? That they have this sort of transformative imagination? Do they fetishize childhood? Of course, uh, yeah, this idea was, of course, very big in Mitzkevich's writing, of course, the idea of returning to the childhood. Yeah, and this idealization of, of the childhood, of course, but, but I wouldn't find a connection with that to Schultz. Mm. Uh, I think the, the novelist is much closer than, than Mitzkevich mm-hmm. uh, to that. But yeah, but the idea idea of returning to childhood is, is Mitskevich, Mitskevich's and, and actually he invented that in Polish literature and he uh, made okay. it big this theme of returning to the childhood yeah, yeah. and he did it in Pantadeus that avian project of my father's was the last explosion of color the last splendid countermarch of a fantasy that that incorrigible improviser that swordsman of the imagination produced on the earthworks and trenches of barren empty winter. Only today do I understand the lonely heroism with which he, all by himself, waged war on the boundless element of boredom stupefying our city. Deprived of all support, without recognition on our part, that most peculiar man defended the lost cause of poetry. He was a wonderful mill into whose hoppers the bran of empty hours poured, that it might bloom within its cogwheels with all the colors and fragrances of the spices of the East. I think the very important part of this romanticizing the reality is Schulz's father. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I I found one interesting sentence in in Manikin's story about his father. Yeah, only today do I understand the lonely heroism with which he, all by himself, waged war on the boundless elements of boredom, stupefying our city. Fantastic quotation. <laughs> yeah, so the father is the figure which... It's, he is a dreamer, kind of. Yeah, yeah. And, and yeah. He, he was someone like that. Of course, we couldn't say that this is uh, a portrait of his father. Of course, it's not. But I think that Schulz had some sort of connection with his father and his father wasn't like very ordinary man. He he was kind of a dreamer and, and maybe he was this kind of artistic soul. Well, the presentation of him in the stories, he seems like an artistic soul trapped in a reality that that doesn't allow that, right? And that destroys him, seemingly. Yeah, and there's uh, the story, uh, The Visitation, kind of about about this, how his father is disappearing. Uh, My father was slowly disappearing, withering before our eyes. He engaged in conversation with himself in a low voice, utterly engrossed in some convoluted internal affairs. And I think it's uh, quite 
quite uh, similar to the situation of Schultz too, like the man who is trying to yeah. become an artist in this very non-artistic environment. And this is uh, also a similarity to Franz Kafka. Yeah. A writer who should, I know, uh, pop out here. Uh, Schultz was even translating a trial. He did a translation. So very, very similar um, writer. C- kind of the same bre- background. Do, do, you re- do you really think so? Uh, no, I mean, I'm no, no. I, I mean in um, in this uh, biographic. Okay, I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the same Jew uh, in Austro-Hungarian Empire yeah. uh, from non-Jewish family who is trying to to be an artist and everything around him tells him <laughs> no. <Yeah. laughs> so I mean this this idea, of course, it's something I think similar. Certainly in English, whenever you read about Schultz, the the first name for a kind of comparison that comes up is is Kafka all the time. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting. I didn't know that actually that he was translating Kafka. But to me, the similarities, uh, you know, other than biographical, they seem quite slight in terms of just how they write and the kinds of imaginations they have. They mm-hmm. seem quite dissimilar to me. The experience of reading them is not similar for me. I think that this subjectivity and the specific rules. I think this like the subjective rules of creating this world. I, I think I, I can see some similarities there that you don't know if you are in a dream of a protagonist or it's um, this very grey boundary between realism and and supernatural is I think this is something they have in common maybe their humor as well is is quite <laughs> is quite similar perhaps I mean just those passages that you've you've picked out in Schultz in both of them that I think they're both very very funny but I suppose just stylistically they they feel oh, yeah, feel very different yeah, totally to me. totally different of course yeah yeah but uh, the figure of the father I think it's something they have in common too yeah and I think it's it's from Jewish tradition mostly the idea of the like this big figure of the father so the father when he comes up in a visitation the the way that he is sort of wilting away or decaying is is emphasized but it seems like in every single story where we meet him he's in a different state of growth or decay or, you know or appears in a slightly different guise his character is never sort of static he's a sort of shadowy fluid kind of character and regularly performs acts of what we can only call metamorphosis right yeah sure and yeah of course this is the the other connection between kafka and schultz yeah this is a strong one (laughs) from then on we gave up on father the similarity to a cockroach became clearer with every day my father was turning into a cockroach we began to grow accustomed to this we saw him less and less frequently. He would disappear somewhere for entire weeks on his cockroach paths, and we were no longer able to distinguish him, for he had merged completely with that uncanny black tribe. Who could say if he was still living somewhere in some chink in the floor, or running around the rooms at night entangled in cockroach affairs? Or if perhaps he was among those dead insects that Adela found every morning lying belly up, bristly with legs, that she collected with loathing on her dustpan and discarded. I mean the story about cockroaches. Because it's it's a story about 
cockroaches and, yeah. and how his father become one of them. And he, of course, how, how you said that, that his father, he transforms into many different forms. Mm. He's a uh, bird once. He's just losing his ties with us. Point by point, he lost the bonds connecting him with the human community. Mm. The narrator, he is asking his mother, is, is his father a big bird? It was the period of grey days that arrived after the splendid colorfulness of my father's age of genius. Father was already gone by then. The upstairs rooms had been thoroughly cleaned and rented out to a woman telephone operator. So father is gone uh, after his yeah, age of genius. Mm. And the only remains of his father is this big bird, which is a stuffed condor standing on the shelf in the sitting room. So the narrator have the he has the idea that this is the father, this yeah. stuffed condor. But he was talking to his mother and his mother, she reminds him about the cockroaches, how his father became one of them, yeah. uh, one of these cockroaches. From then on, we gave up on father. The similar similarity to the cockroach became clearer with every day. My father was turning into a cockroach. Yeah. <laughs> and the last sentence, and yet I said disconcerted, I'm certain that that condor and he are one and the same. Mm. Mother glanced at me from the from under her eyelashes. Don't torment me, my dear. I already told you that father is traveling about the country as a traveling salesman. That sounds familiar. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Gregor Samsa yeah. is a traveling salesman. He is indeed, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> you've uh, pre- <laughs> you've proved your point, Stefan. I I give in. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, of, 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 of course. I mean, it took me long, sorry, but... Uh, no, no, no. <laughs> no, of, of course. I mean, there's a clear sort of influence in that story, ap- absolutely. But in my subjective experience of reading them, two of them as, mm-hmm. as stylists, they seem sort of quite different. Yeah, definitely. You know, just talking about the, the father and his various transformations, it can be so humorous at times, I, I think, and humorous and just tragic at, at the same time. So in this story, birds, the father becomes obsessed with breeding tropical birds. And for a time, the attic room is, is given over entirely to this activity and is uh, no one wants to go in there because there's this chaotic screeching and the clatter of wings everywhere and this attic room has become a sort of uh, rainforest and then the father in response to this colorful world of the the birds seems to be undergoing his own transformation and and we get this passage only rarely did he descend into the apartment and then we were able to notice that apparently he had grown smaller lost weight and shriveled sometimes Out of forgetfulness, he would leap up from his chair at the table and, flapping his arms like wings, emit a protracted crowing while his eyes became clouded with a misty film. Then, abashed, he would laugh along with us and attempt to turn the incident into a joke. (laughs) I I, I love this passage. But, you know, I love it for its humour, but the way that it illustrates this lack of any kind of static quality in in the father. And each time we encounter him, he's in some different stage of this. You know, you've pointed out the the transformation into the the cockroach. He's almost seeming to recede into into nothing. His level of sort of vividness, the the degree to which he seems alive and functional Mm -hmm. and conscious keeps shifting. Maybe at his, his sort of most active... 
we see him in the mannequin stories, which I think are really interesting. Uh-huh. And I'm particularly interested in it in, well, in reference, Stefan, to what you were talking about with this quotation that you gave about he was waging a war against the kind of boredom that stupefied our small town. Yeah. Because that is suggestive of this kind of artistic soul and that you sort of align him with Schultz in that he is kind of performing this act upon the world, you know, of, of romanticizing it or mythologizing it in some way. But I think the character of the aesthetic project of the father and what Schultz is talking about are actually quite different. So if we think about the the content of the mannequin's lecture that he gives, so he's talking about how humankind can perform its own kind of creation right he's he's essentially giving a lecture on his own sort of creation myth how humankind will create uh, another kind of being again right and he gives this speech he says we confess openly we will not insist on the permanence or solidity of our workmanship our creations will be provisional as it were constructed for a single use if they're to be people we will give them for example only one side of a face, one arm, one leg, namely the one that will be necessary for their role. You know, that's just a little snippet of it, but I felt like this father's sort of creative project couldn't be further from any notion of an original or primeval meaning that, that Schultz is talking about in Mitazatia Rzeczywistości, for instance. Instead of trying to achieve a kind of perfection or trace the word or the object back to its platonic ideal this theory embraces like a secondary quality it's okay that human creation will be inferior in some sense to divine creation the the inferiority is embraced in that speech i think there's also one uh, interesting topic in this story because it's like this of course it's very fragmentarized story this treatise of mannequins it has three it's four parts even i think four four parts four parts yes uh, the second book of genesis uh, yeah. <laughs> how it's called and yeah and it's it's evolving throughout the mm. story because father is he's developing this lecture and i think there is uh, also one interesting topic and uh, in that which we can observe in the other stories mm. of schultz like the idea of a kind of deceptive appearance or something which is in half like he said half organic a kind of pseudoflora and pseudofauna mm. right the result of the fantastic fermentation of matter and also places which are half forgotten moments of the day which are in between night and day liminal moments yeah what what he, what what he's interested in the sleepy days the reverse side deceptive appearance half forgotten unexplored mm. land something doubtful doubtful existence in the crocodile street there is a quarter of defective goods mm. So this idea of something which is not full, yeah. something, yeah, half of something else. It's, it's fascinating. Uh, I think it's something very unique to his writing, searching for this, for, for this. Um, it's not like an imperfection. Un- it's something more, I think. It's not pessimistic, exactly, is it, this view? Pessimistic. Yeah, it's not, it doesn't seem pe- no. pessimistic at all. No, of course, it's like embracing of it. Yeah. The father says, who knows? He said, how many suffering, crippled, fragmentary forms of life there are. Yeah, I think this is one of this very interesting topic, this crippled, suffering and fragmentary forms of life.
hours filled with heat and boredom pass, during which Tuya babbles under her breath, dozes, grumbles quietly, and grunts. A thick swarm of flies settles on the immobile girl. But suddenly, this whole pile of dirty, tattered clothes, of rags and scraps, begins to move as if animated by the rustling of rats breeding inside it. Startled, the flies wake up and rise in a great roaring swarm full of furious buzzing, flashes and flickering. And while the tattered clothes slip onto the ground and scatter across the garbage dump like frightened rats, the heath of the dump digs its way out from them. The core slowly unwraps itself and emerges from its shell. A half-naked, dark imbecile slowly rises and stands there, looking like a little pagan idol on short, childlike legs, while from her neck, which is swollen with an influx of fury, from her flushed face growing dark with rage, on which arabesques of swollen veins resembling primitive paintings are efflorescing, a bestial shriek escapes, a throaty shriek produced from all the bronchi and pipes of this half-bestial, half-godlike breast. The milk thistles, burned by the sun, are screaming, the burdocks puffing up and flaunting their shameless flesh, the weeds drooling glistening poison, and the imbecile girl, in a wild convulsion, hoarse from her shrieking, thrusts her fleshy groin against the elderberry trunk that, bewitched by this whole beggar's chorus to perverted pagan fecundity, creaks softly beneath the urgency of dissolute lust. There doesn't seem to be a distinction in uh, Schultz's mind or the narrator's consciousness, let's say, between the thing that deserves attention and the thing that doesn't deserve attention. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we've talked about the intensity of the vision a lot. I found that, you know, just reading it, I was really struck by how Schultz seems obsessed with fecundity or fertility, particularly scientific imagery in relation to that. There's a lot of botanical imagery in the in the stories so like the word chlorophyll keeps coming up and vegetation for instance when when the father is surveying his collection of birds he's described as a gardener patrolling his hotbeds of cacti and luring out of nothingness those blind bladders pulsing with life like this idea of some animating energy is a preoccupation of him these these objects that sort of jostling with with life almost to a point of being disturbing because they're so they're so full of life those are preoccupations but there's just as much preoccupation with the things in which there is no life or in which life is decaying mm -hmm. i saw this tendency towards extremes either the the extremely vivid and fecund or the things sort of turning towards decay or broken that fragment from autumn about fruit just comparing it to at the opening of the story the windstorm mm -hmm. instead of these baskets of fruit and the summer day we're in winter time it's dark and we're in an, an attic room with no life in it at all but it has the same intensity so that story begins during the long empty winter the darkness produced an immense hundredfold harvest in our city uh, interesting choice of word their harvest given that sort of uh, vegetation imagery that i picked up on for too long it seemed that no one had cleaned the attics and junk rooms pots were piled on pots and bottles were jammed next to bottles empty batteries of bottles were allowed to accumulate endlessly 
There in the scorched, multi-rafted forests of attics and roofs, the darkness began to degenerate and wildly ferment another like mm-hmm. scientific <laughs> kind of idea. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, there those black parliaments of pots began, those garrulous and empty rallies, those mumbling bouts between flasks, those burblings of bottles and jugs. This sort of congregation of, of objects that contains no biological life is just as intensely described, but it is it is the sort of forgotten portion of, of the house, right? It's the left behind broken portion of reality mm-hmm. is also a, a huge preoccupation. That intensity of vision is not just concerned with beauty or with, you know, celebration or glory or anything like that, any sort of traditional aesthetics, but it, it's also looking at the darkest portions of reality as well, which I love about Schultz, the extremity of his imagination. Yeah, and that's what you're saying, uh, this theme of vegetation and fertility and decay. Uh, I think the first story... August. It's also about that. It starts with this huge uh, heat, uh, the summer heat. And after that, he just write about how it is in the city when there is like this huge heat. And after that, he's tra- starting to, to describe the garden, which was like very wild garden and full of everything, actually. Yeah, the grasses, weeds, wild plants, milk, thistles. And then there is like this great passage. No one knew that it was precisely there during that summer that August was celebrating its great pagan orgy on this garbage dump propped against the fence and overgrown with wild lilac stood the bed of Tuya, the idiot girl. That's what we all called her. On a pile of garbage and scraps and pots, shoes, rubble and trash stood a green painted bed supported in the place of a missing leg (laughs) by two old bricks. And then we can see this idiot girl. It is kind of disgusting and erotic in the same time, this, this picture. So yeah, it's very extreme. I think you used the, the words. <laughs> you you picked out one of my favorite passages from August, actually, which just contains everything you, you need to know about Schultz in some way, doesn't it? That opening story. Yeah. When you read that, it's like a sort of an overture to the text, isn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah. You're right. You're, you're totally right. There is this one sentence, the milk thistles burned by the sun are screaming, the burdocks puffing up and flaunting their shameless flesh, the weeds drooling glistening poison and the imbecile girl in the wild convulsion hoarse from her shrieking with frenzied passion thrust her fleshy groin against an elderberry trunk that bewitched by this whole beggar's chorus to pervert pagan fecundity creaked softly beneath the urgency of dissolute lust. Wow. <laughs> that, 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 that's weird. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, and that's that. Uh, that's strong in the same way, you know. It does speak of this sort of this animating force of the imagination and its epistemological border with reality. They're sort of like pressing up against each other there, right? In in that sexual act between well, the natural world and the and the human. Mm-hmm. That they're sort of forgive the graphic nature of the comparison, but the the, the friction between them is what creates yeah. this spark from which the work proceeds. (laughs) 
how many shirts would uh, cinnamon shops by Bruno Schulz get? A, a difficult one for you to answer because it's a book that seems to have been in your life for a long time, right? Like, I can just simply say 10. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but why not? I mean, it's to me, it's uh, a sort of perfect text somehow. It's so special. It's it's that kind of level. I me. think, no, I think it's like a, a very shirty. Yeah, it does. So, <laughs> does fit our. So yeah, yeah. Of, of course. Yeah. So if I have to find the shirtiest <laughs> book. <laughs> In our literature, I would say Schultz, yeah. So, so yeah, I would say 10, 10 out of 10. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to have to give it the same, I think. It's one that's going to be in my life forever, pretty much. I hope that one day I'll be able to read this in, in Polish, mm. you know, without stopping to look at the dictionary every every three or four words because it just is that challenging to be honest when i when i was reading it in english and and even now mm. when i read this couple of sentences I, I i felt lost yeah i i know you know i knew what i'm reading but I, ah there's so many words i actually i'm not familiar with yeah here so yeah great work for a translator for sure i read the original translation it's done much earlier by uh Tarina Wieniewska, i think is the the name mm-hmm. and that's the kind of classic one that's published in penguin classics but this is this is glorious i think this new translation by madeline g levin is yeah and, and it is very accurate uh, i have to say uh the moment i was i was comparing and it is it's totally uh, accurate it, it doesn't sacrifice any of its readability you know it it mm-hmm, feels mm-hmm. like good good english and i think the criticisms of the previous translation which i really enjoyed too uh with that it read beautifully but it was far less accurate than this new one but I'm pleased to have both available to me maybe I enjoyed it even more in this new translation so uh, absolute pleasure to to read it Stefan thanks so much for giving up a huge portion of your evening to talk to us uh, it's been a thank you so much a pleasure it was again. great pl- great pleasure for me too oh fantastic it's always nice really nice talking to you and it was really interesting thank you oh thanks so much <laughs> Stefan We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Sherds Podcast. If you have any questions or comments for us, please write to us at sherdspodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Instagram or Twitter. And if you like the show, please leave us a review on iTunes. It really helps our visibility. If you enjoy the music on the show, I compose the vast majority of it myself, and it can be found on SoundCloud under the name Sherds Music. Most of it is available to download for free. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.